Hey everybody, welcome back. It's another episode of Simply Amazing. Uh, Tim Ryder from the Apple. Got a very fun show lined up today. Uh, Taryn's back. He's going to be with us shortly. We also have our buddy Andy Billman. Andy worked for ESPN for many years. He's got a new documentary coming out. It's called War on the Diamond. It's the story of Ray Chapman, who, if you're not familiar, uh, was the only major leaguer to be killed on the playing field uh, in, in major league history. That happened in 1920. Takes you through his story. Takes you through the story of... Cleveland baseball, their rivalry with the Yankees, who uh, at the time, you know, this is a very heated rivalry with New York at the time, and, and the pitcher who who killed Chapman, Carl Mays, was a pitcher with the Yankees, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really multi-layered uh, little journey that Andy and 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 his uh, his pals take us through, but. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into everything that's going on with the Mets so far, from Jake DeGrom and those wild rumors, uh, qualifying offers being thrown around or not thrown around in some cases, cookies back. We're going to be talking about uh, kind of where things line up as this offseason kind of jumps off. But yeah, we'll have Taryn with us shortly. Uh, Andy's going to be coming on with us in a second. So you guys hang out. Hey, everybody. We are back. Uh, as discussed, we have a special guest today. Uh, this is not very Mets related, but you guys are going to get a kick out of this. Um, I recently had the opportunity to check out a pre-screening of War on the Diamond, which is a really, really cool film, um, documentary style, but it also tells the story of Ray Chapman, who some of you might be familiar with, some might not. He was a player in the teens, uh, was the only major leaguer to uh, die on the field of play, was hit by a pitch by a pitcher named Carl Mays. Um, and today we have the director of the film, Andy Billman, with us, who's previously worked for ESPN. This is an independent project, and uh, we're very excited to uh, to help spread the word and, and really super, super excited to, to, I guess, ask some questions because, uh, again, I, I was really blown away by it. One, Andy, thank you for joining, and two, how's it going, man? <laughs> It's going great. You know, let's go Mets. Buy that <laughs> film. Bush play. Uh, honor to be here. And uh, thank you for that nice lead in uh, being a being a Clevelander. It's uh, I've been to City Field. It's a wonderful place. And um, yes, I, I'm very excited to talk about a project that um, kind of fell in my lap in the storyline of a team that I really root for a lot. Well, I mean, you know, I want to start from the beginning, but I guess I'll start from my beginning. Uh, sure. As a baseball fan in the 90s, I was a teenager, my formative years. You know, those Cleveland Yankees series were outstanding. You know, those Cleveland teams were just unbelievable. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the the fire and, and the, you just the postseason lore that was kind of tied up with that, you know, from an outsider's perspective, it's like, wow, that was a really a peak in baseball. And then watching your film and seeing, I guess, for at least from Cleveland's perspective, and of course from the Yankees as well, but from Cleveland's perspective, the, the rivalry that's grown over, you know, and, and this is no, no, you know, this is no exaggeration over the last century is, yeah. um, is extremely layered. It's, and it, you know, it all kind of starts with, uh, a terrific player in his time, uh, Ray Chapman, who, you know, a lot of people know him as a guy, as the only major leaguer to die on the field of play. Um, 
you know, over his span, which was 1912 to 1920, was 28th in wins above replacement, which of course, you know, Fangraphs mm-hmm. is able to uh, to pull that to pull that up. But what a well-rounded player! I mean, a, a yeah. 278 average is is pedestrian for the time. Not pedestrian, but solid. Yeah. But you know, nothing to to write home about. 358 on base percentage. He's one of the highest rated base runners in the league. Um, his defense was just through the roof. Yeah, you know, there was so much to go along with Ray Chapman, and you guys did a real good job of kind of telling his story. Uh, up to and through his his uh, early demise, uh, would you care to just give us like a a quick run through uh, of your experience building the film? Sure. So I I'll take it in two parts. So there's the rivalry aspect of this film, and obviously for Mets fans, they probably feel the same for the Yankees, and that's true. Um, there, I'm a big believer in studying sports and the importance of rivalries. I like rivalries. I think they really what drives us. And for the Mets, I would assume it's the Braves. Definitely Yankees. And, you know, and obviously from the Cleveland perspective, it's really the White Sox and Yankees. Um, that's really the two teams that have really um, pushed our, the buttons of the Indians. And so it really started in 1920 with the team of the Indians that was coming on the rise with Ray Chapman, who was the star player of the team that you alluded to, Tress Speaker, legendary Hall of Famer, and many other players, Ed Joel Sewell, who was a legendary Hall of Famer. Uh, who actually replaced Chapman later in the year. And ironically, it was the same year that the Yankees had gotten Ruth. So in 20, it was the Indians and Yankees, along with the White Sox in the background, who was still, uh, even after the Black Sox scandal, was still a very good team. And that really didn't get settled out until the end of September. So the White Sox are still the White Sox at that time. Say this three-team race. But really, for most of the season, it was focused on the Yankees and Indians. And the Indians were considered the favorites. Uh, by by most to win the World Series. And the Yankees, it, it was kind of conflicted, but they all knew about Ruth. And and obviously when Ruth took off, the Yankees took off and it made for a great pennant race. And it all culminated on that August day. And so from an Indians fan perspective, from my perspective, that's really what started the rivalry. Our star player and star, you know, really a star of the town, Ray Chapman, died tragically from pitch. And ironically, somehow the Indians gathered themselves and still won the world series which is amazing um to think of that and there's a lot of cleveland fans who probably don't know the story of that whole season when i was growing up in the 80s you never talked about 20 you always talked about 48 54 and you talked about other maybe memories in the you know in that time period but really rocky calavito may have barker's perfect game but like you really never talked about 20. so i think for a lot of clevelanders that's what we're bringing that story up it's going to come through and then obviously there's a timeline of moments. Uh, Feller and DiMaggio were very good friends, and Feller had a very tumultuous relationship with New York. Um, he had an autobiography, and he pretty much stated, I hate the Yankees throughout. <laughs> and that became a big part of it, and the Yankees fans obliged by teasing him a lot. So there was that love-hate relationship there. Obviously in 48, uh, the year before the Yankees won the series, in 47 and 48, the Indians overtook the Yankees and won the World Series. 49 and 53 was a great, usually the Indians were in second place all those years or in third uh, between 49 and 53. And then the Indians came back in uh, 54 with an historical win mark. In fact, the 54 Yankees were the most wins ever by a single managed team, but yet the Indians won um, the AL pennant that year. And so there's all those different types of memories. And then you throw in what happened in the 90s, as you described, the 2000s, what happened this year, um, obviously too with the Yankees and Guardians now. And then you throw in some storylines like George Steinbrenner 
He is from Cleveland. He actually tried to, his actually, his dream growing up was to own the Cleveland Indians. Only to be rebuffed by the Yankees, which is uh, oh, and, those- and the monster that, that they created. And he turned yes. attention to New York. And, and that was, you know, that was that. Yeah, it was that. So for people who really justify things, there's, you know, the, I'll, I'll put it in this perspective. The Yankees and Royals had a fantastic uh, rivalry in, in the late 70s, early 80s. But obviously that kind of dissipated over time. So to compare to people, this is over 100 years. And as long as there is a family called Steinbrenner owning the Yankees, <laughs> that that is a Bay Village, Ohio family. Sure. They grew up rooting for the Indians. So that that, that that's as rivalry as it gets, <laughs> in my opinion. So that's kind of the historical ride with the main theme being what happened in 1920 between Ray Chapman of the Indians and Carl Mays of the Yankees. Now, you spoke briefly about um, uh, Ray Chapman being almost like a, a Prince of Cleveland sort yes. of situation. I mean, married to a, a, a wealthy um, socialite, a, a, a Cleveland darling, a very powerful Cleveland family, yep. um, very tabloid coverage uh, of the of the wedding. Um, you know, this guy was you know, pretty much etched in etched in the stone of Cleveland history or well on his way to being so. Right. Yes. Uh, for people who don't know, Chapman married a woman named Katie Daly in 1919. And that was a big, big deal. And in fact, you will find articles r- written in even in Oklahoma um, about how big of a wedding it was between Ray Chapman and Katie Daly. It made basically at that time period a national story. That was not a little thing because the Daly family owned an, a huge oil company in Cleveland. So they were very wealthy. And at that time, Ray was going to go off and retire because he was marrying into wealth. And his new father-in-law said, look, why work? Take a desk job. Put your feet up and live on the money. And he was considering doing that. And Trev Speaker kind of talked him out, who was his best friend and player manager of the team, talked him into playing in 1920. So he was a starlet. Katie Katie Daly, I mean, was a starlet. They were stars. That was a huge deal in Cleveland. But again, if if you do a simple research in that time where they got married, the story was in a lot of publications throughout the country. And so it wasn't just like a little thing in Cleveland. It was, a, it was a bigger story that was told throughout the nation. And so it was obviously when the, when the moment happened where he died, it was the same kind of reaction. It was in, it was in a lot of papers for a few weeks about what happened that day in, in, um, in the polo grounds. So it was a big story. They were a power couple and they were really brought, they were really built in some people's eyes. You can find Mr. and Mrs. Cleveland in 1919, 1920. Carl Mays, the pitcher who who hit Chapman with the pitch, um, didn't show. I mean, he already had a reputation for being a an aggressive pitcher. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't really show much emotion at the time, per reports, right? Well, I mean, he, he even said it himself. <laughs> I don't think the guy had. Uh, for people who don't know, we actually got an audio recording of Carl. Carl was going to do an autobiography in the, in the late sixties. Uh, of his life, and he obviously never finished it because he passed away. But we were able to uncover. I found the article talking about his audio recording, and so we were able to unearth that audio. Um, so there's two sides of this too. We got to be fair to Mr. Mays. The 1890s and early 1900s in Kentucky and Missouri were not good times. It was a very rough time. It was a very different time period. Very different game, to be honest with you. The players uh, 19- themselves were, were just oh correct more correct. hardened 
Trump. Oh, hard. I mean, <laughs> there, there are people who describe it as the Wild West. I mean, who brags about sharpening their spikes, cleating people? Ty Cobb. I mean, that's that's what kind of people we're talking about. And that Cobb <laughs> Mays era, I wouldn't say was all the way the norm, but it wasn't unusual either. It yeah. was it, it was really played by a bunch of. I would because I've. There's a gentleman in my film named Randy Roberts who's a big historian of of um, baseball, and it was just it would it would almost be like if you're a lion tamer at the circus and you know the lion happened to eat the lion tamer. Well, that's kind of the danger of it. Well, baseball was dangerous. It was not a clean game. It was a very hard game. It was kind of wild. I mean, there were. I mean, to tell you how crazy it was, owners didn't even. Um, exchange pit balls sometimes, meaning they only played with like 11 or 12 balls. So like if a ball got hit out of the park, the owners would be like, get that ball back. <laughs> like, wait, that needs to come back and play. So it was just a very different time. And so for Mays, he grew up in the Midwest of Missouri, as he would say in a microphone. And so because of that, he wasn't, he, he's a very hardened individual, but there was more Carl Mays then than there are obviously today. Sure. So in fairness to Mays, he grew up in a time period that was very different and the game was very different. Now, all that to be said, I think some of his audio is still jarring. Yeah. And it's still and it's still very surprising to hear some of the things he said. Um, and there's a great story that we bring up in the film about him basically beating the shit out of a guy on a train <laughs> over a card game. The card game. I I saw that and that, that stuck with me. <laughs> That's crazy. But that was baseball. I mean, that, that kind of was it. Um, and you know, if you listen to his stories, I mean, just a different game, but you know, he was a competitor and do I think he meant to hurt anyone? Absolutely not. No. Was, does he believe he, that was his plate and he was trying to protect his plate? Yes. And he was very protective of that. Um, so that's something that people should keep in mind too. Um, well, at least still, you, had, you had the benefit of not of him not mincing his words what's no 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 there's no question his motives i mean you know he he very plainly states his position in it and whether it's fair or not whether we agree if it's fair or not it's not really up to us it's just a kind of an account of of what happened from a first-hand i mean look as soon as i heard it i'm like your first words are not geez i'm really sorry i felt (laughs) terrible i haven't been able to sleep for weeks no i mean it was just like yeah you ran the ball what do you want yeah um which again in that time period though was how it went um obviously healthcare in 1920s at a baseball game was not what it was today not even close so to a lot of people who saw the incident, and it was bad. I mean, Babe Ruth described it as it sounded like a loud ball going off a metal beam. Jeez, uh-uh. that's terrible uh, to hear something like that. But again, even at that time, everybody thought he would be okay because that's kind of what people believed and thought. So um, it's just kind of that time period, but Carl Mays definitely fit in there. And I, he's obviously remorseful someone died, yes, but is he remorseful for what happened? No. Sure. And that's kind of the vibe that you took from him. And again, different time, different games, yes. different different types of players. Yes. And, uh, you know, incomparable to today's game. But do you feel like the city of Cleveland, who of course loves their baseball, loves their sports, but um and there was success after, but you know, and and it's tough to kind of gauge it now, but was there that 
reeling feeling at the time or, or was, you know, with speaker in the mix and other talented players, was it, you know, I hate to be crass, but did, did, you know, did time just kind of keep on moving? Yeah, I would say to your line, it, it, it was a false celebration. A lot of people had a very hard time. They had a parade in 20 after the Indians won and the parade ended in chaos because people were grieving over Chapman. Wow. And, and so that it just, it just speaks to another level again of how 1920 was re- never really been properly celebrated. And obviously so a man died in the middle of the season. That's terrible. So it, it makes sense. So I guess to your point, you know, as we all realize, sadly, these things happen and, you know, you think of other incidents that were terrible like that, like Hank Gathers and other things like that. And, you know, as you start to learn, like, you know, they're going to keep tipping them off at some point until the first pitch. And I think for Cleveland's perspective, it it was a it was a championship, yes, but it was a championship never really celebrated. Yeah. And so because of that, I think it obviously left a mark on the Indians, as it should. And they were still very good, but they weren't. 1920 was just a magic elixir. And in fairness too, the Yankees just became a juggernaut with Babe. And I think everything kind of changed after that season. So yes, time did move on, but I think the Indians um, had a very hard time moving on in. You know, we don't get into it. Sonny Jim Dunn, who was, a, I would say the best owner the Indians ever had. He years later would be, and not, not too far removed from the championship. He would die suddenly. So like there's other moments that kind of just happened where I think it kind of, I don't know what the right word is. It just didn't seem peppy. And honestly, yeah, it did. And as it should, I mean, that kind of event, you're going to have that. And honestly, Feller brought a big energy to the ball club. And and that really kind of changed things again in the thirties. Oh, and he was, he was incredible. I love the, the, the parts with him in the film. I think that was, you know, just kind of speaking to the history of Cleveland and how it all interlocks together from from start to finish and even to today's game it's a uh, it was just an incredible journey to watch and it, i have to assume you guys had just as, i mean you're you're in a cleveland sports fan you have to be just as i guess proud and 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 the journey itself must have been just as fun going through it yourself right well i never again i never really learned much about 20s growing up i never really heard about it in fact, I, I would be de- debating if there's a lot of people in Cleveland who realize Tress Speaker played for the Indians. Um, I just don't think 20 celebrated. And again, I get it. It's because the guy died. It just doesn't get brought up for obvious reasons. Uh, I think this gives a chance, yeah, to learn some more about the history. But also for me, obviously being a diehard, it helped me learn and understand some things about why things went down the way they did in years in years later. Because um, when you have something like that happen, it, it, you said it, well, it takes your wind out of your sails. and sure. kind of, it, it kind of makes it feel funky. And that's that was a big deal in 1920 to beat Babe Ruth and to win the pennant and to go on and beat the Brooklyn Robins, now Dod, you know, L.A. Dodgers. I mean, it's a huge World Series win. Sure. And it just doesn't get celebrated. Um, there's probably a lot of people don't know about it. And I think that obviously took a lot of their mojo out of it. And uh, again, I would... It just changed, um, but it did. It, it did help me learn about that. Help me understand, and obviously, you start doing a deeper dive into your ball club. It helps you realize some things that weirdly still go on today that kind of were going on for years. They just never realized until you start really studying it. And there's definitely some parallels. 
that were going on 1920 and they're still going on today in 2022. Just great stuff. And, and you guys were able to pull up uh, a pretty cool relic from the time as well. I'm not sure if you want to share or leave that for the film, but boy, almost brought tears to my eyes. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's like a lot of things that we did some reenactments um, we did some things that uh, documentarians do that I took, we, I think I took, we took big risk on. I think they worked. And we try to really bring to life about what, because obviously when you're doing a store in 1920, you want to put a today's touch on it. Mm-hmm. And so I think through reenactments and then the finding of this plaque story that happened, uh, people don't know, Ray Chapman obviously had a plaque and an honorary thing to honor his death and his legendary status in Cleveland. And sadly, um, that plaque went missing. For a long time and it was just recently found so it kind of also brings into uh it just brings in a full circle the finding of this plaque and everything that's been going on and yeah i mean look there's a lot of look i think it was Ferducci said it and i know um at one point um uh what's it? a manilov said it there's a lot of layers to indians yankees a lot and as i said there's still some today uh, obviously what happened this year in the playoffs is kind of spunky <laughs> There's nothing um, more fun than riding on the Mets. It's a fun team. It's a fun team. Yeah, we're very lucky. And by the way, the Mets uh, helped us out a lot with Jimenez and uh, Rosario. <laughs> um, what a but, great uh, trade. Great we're, trade. By the way, but work right for both teams. Yeah. Because once the Mets start, uh, when, and they are, they you guys, I was cheering for you guys. I really want to see you guys win. Uh, Carrasco, when healthy, is a big pitcher in big spots. So that, that I mean, it's not, I know Lindor is a focus, but Carrasco can really pitch. Um, is very likable guy. Um, but anyways, you know, it just, it, it's fun riding home on Metro North. I went to game two and it's fun <laughs> listening to the Yankees fans saying that was such a Cleveland win. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean? He goes, well, we wouldn't want to start the game. Please, <laughs> really? And ironically, 1920, the Indians were bunting and playing a game that was very different, and the Yankees were hitting home runs. So, yeah, 102 years later, it's still the same stuff. It's just different times. That's it. It is. It is. But uh, really, I, I, I can't express uh, enough gratitude for one sharing the screening with me. I really enjoyed it. Two, coming on. Um, the, the premiere, uh, the the film premieres on the fifteenth of November, so it's 15th, coming up next week. Fifteenth, go on to Amazon or Apple TV. You just type in "War in the Diamond." You can buy it, purchase it. It'll be ready for you. It's very affordable, five dollars. Um, do what you gotta do to watch it. And like I said, WarnTheDiamond.com will give you more information, and you can check it out anytime. That's WarnTheDiamond.com, Apple, Amazon, or any VOD platform. So if you have Xfinity or you have Comcast, you can buy it on those platforms as well. Excellent. 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 Andy, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, go Tribe. I know it's not go. the Tribe anymore. It's Guardians. but Go Guards. Go Gardos. Go, go, by the way, are, are you happy with the with the with the brand change, the name change? I really think they hit it on the head. I I, I mean, I was yeah. iffy at first, but that that's pretty cool. I think they tied in the city with it. And look, I'll be brief. I go on <laughs> this when you lose your team like the Browns, it's just nice having your team in town. So <laughs> I I was very different from most fans. I did not feel that. I mean, the Indians were the name I grew up with. Yes. I don't get attached to team names like other fans do. My dad had a very hard time with it. People who are very close to me had a very hard time angry about it. Uh, I'm I'm good with it. It's good. It's fine. 
Uh, Guardians is a good name. I mean, it's fine. It works. It's good. Um, when you win, by the way, the name sounds a lot better. Uh, you know, your first Young Guardians. In the world. So I talk about it a lot. And, you know, if people want to get a real perspective, I have an Instagram handle called at official Cleveland sports. And I do post games. It has 140,000 plus followers. I do post games after every Guardians game. And that would get brought up a lot. And one of the things I'd always tell the fans, like, look, like, we get it. My memories are for this. But the most important thing is it's Cleveland baseball. That's the most important thing. Guardians (laughs) works. It's a cool name. I won't lie to you, Tim. It helps when you win. So I think the guard, I think the Guardians Indians chatter, I will admit, after October finally started going away, which is nice. Uh, that it was wearing me down. I'm sure it was wearing down others too. So it's it's nice that's kind of going away. And I understand that I'm very sympathetic to those who still hate the name change. I get it. I, I'm just not that guy. I, I just don't get attached to names like other fans do. Oh, you know, there's so many of us who just aren't good with change. You know. Oh, buddy, I know. I, I teach at a university. And I tell kids all the time, like, change happens. And yeah. you have to embrace change. And, uh, I mean, I won't elaborate anymore than you say. There's a lot of us who will have a good cocktail or do something else when name changes happen. And, uh, uh, this uh, again, the passion came out when the name change happened. And I get it. I get it. Uh, and you're right. People, we all handle change differently. And, and to be truthful, there's a lot of memories behind the name Indian. So I understand why people are having a hard time. With it. Hey, you know, it's, it's like we said, it's change and you just kind of, everyone embraces it at their own pace, but Andy, That's right. I can't thank you enough. Um, everybody it's called war on the diamond. It's out on November 15th. As Andy mentioned, it's across all uh, streaming platforms, uh, your cable platforms as well. Uh, probably check out the trailer that's on YouTube right now. I believe there's a Twitter, uh, war on the diamond. You can check it out everywhere. And, um, I believe we're going to have a couple of, uh, uh, giveaways. Maybe we'll give away some free copies of the show on Amazon or something to that effect on the, on the giveaway day. We'll figure that out once we get there. But Andy, thanks so much again, man. Thank you, Tim. All right. All right, everybody. We'll be back. Uh, have some more uh, Mets chatter to get to. And uh, yeah, hang tight. We'll be right back. All right. We are back. Speaking of we are back, Taryn, welcome back, buddy. Hey Tim, good to be back, man. Um, it was uh, it was a nice break, getting uh, acclimated to work and uh, getting sworn into the bar and, and stuff like that. And so it's uh, we've got some more to talk about now uh, because it's the uh, off season, and I'm I'm excited. You see, when I hear sworn into the bar, I hear very very different things in my head. <laughs> That's right. That's uh, that's you watching the Mets out on the town. That's uh, sworn into the bar. Oh yeah. Well, I've been you know <laughs> sworn in and sworn out of the bar. If we're if we're <laughs> going to be getting into the the details, but not today. Uh, the Mets have so much on their plate right now. There's already little fires cooking everywhere. Um, I think Edwin Diaz. We spoke briefly on the last episode just to kind of give a rundown of what we were hearing, what we were learning. Um. We did get a breakdown of the money, and I think people were kind of taken aback by the money, but I think it's a good thing. Um, I do have the breakdown here. We have uh, $17.25 million 
this year and next year, well, this this coming season and season after, that's 23 and 24, 17 and a half and 25. Then he's got a player option uh, after 25. 26 and 27 are both 18.5 million. A team option after that in 27. And 28th be, uh, will be a 17.25 million. Now, over the course of that deal, he's got 26.5 million deferred, which is works out to 2.65 million a year for 10 years from 2033 to 2042. People are seeing this and they're freaking out. Um, can you talk us off the ledge a little bit? Cause this is actually a good thing, right? Yeah. Uh, is that you're blowing up or I'm blowing up? Um, yeah, you know, I think that this is the way that top end relievers are going to be paid. And I know that that's like a very up and down position, but you can see what a difference it can make. I mean, the Mets definitely don't win 100 games without Diaz being what he was this year. Um, so I, I thought getting him back was critical. If that was the money that it was going to take, that's fine. Uh, it seems like a lot of that um, – or at least a significant portion of that is going to be deferred. Um, they're not going to be, you know, uh, paying him when he's not necessarily in his prime. Like there's good chance that he could be great throughout this, uh, this contract. So um, I, I think making sure that you have the closer locked in, he has adapted well to New York now after a couple of years um, that were a little up and down and he was phenomenal last year. He was a really great source of joy, um, to watch as a fan. Right. So I'm excited that they made it a point to, to bring him back right off the bat. And, um, now it, uh, kind of sets the course going forward. Right. So they'll, uh, they'll figure out what's next. Oh, absolutely. And I think the deferrals kind of lead into that whole process. Cause you know, I guess with his deferrals, being what they are, his uh, annual average salary is eighteen point six million, so that counts against the luxury tax total, and and then gives the Mets the Mets a little bit more wiggle room to, uh, you know, <laughs> fill out the rest of their well. If we're looking directly at it, the rest of their pitching staff. I mean, the starting rotation, which we'll get to in a second, is looking quite bare. The bullpen's looking even even worse right now. I mean. This is per fan graphs. This is what the Mets bullpen looks like right now. Edwin Diaz, Drew Smith, Bryce uh, Montes de Oca, Stephen Nagosik, uh, Yoan Lopez, John Curtis, Taylor Saucedo. Saucedo? I don't yeah, even know how to say it. Saucedo, the guy that they. Is it Saucedo? I don't know. I'm guessing. <laughs> I'm going to see what that sauce do. <laughs> Taylor's yeah. do. No, um, I think so. Yeah, Sosito sounds right. Sosito, Sosito, uh, and and Jose Buto. And um, you know, there's going to be a lot of work to do there. And you know, there's a lot of work to do in a lot of different places. But you know, trimming what's a you know a extremely substantial multi-year contract for a guy like Edwin Diaz. Again, a uh, a uh, 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 very deserved and a very fair contract for what he brings to the table. But, you know, you look at 20 million a year and it's like, wow, um, with the deferrals, it, you know, it's a little bit easier to, um, 
easier to swallow, but you know, the Mets now you have to go out and fill so many other holes. And I think, you know, having a, a few extra dollars can't hurt that. Um, I just don't feel like this is going to be a team that's going to, you know, cut corners and nickel and dime their way into a hundred wins again. I think that they kind of know what's, what's ahead of them and what, know what has to be done and kind of feels like the first step in many. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that the bear cupboard that you outline, uh, makes it pretty clear that there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, the decision that they made on Givens basically, um, you know, agreeing that that was not necessarily a success and, and doesn't really bode well for his contributions in the future, just deciding to, to cut ties with him. Um, I thought that was fine, but you know, that's another guy that would have pitched a significant number of innings for a bullpen. So there's, you know, you, you've at least got to hope that Billy and Steve have a, uh, a plan in place. And I'm sure that they do because that's, you know, that's the job. But um, yeah, I think Edwin, the money is not uh, like ridiculous, right? Like it's a lot of money for a reliever because we haven't seen a ton of relievers make that uh, average annual value. But like, if you consider that, I think according to Fangraphs, he was worth probably around three wins last year. The value of a win uh, on free on the free agent market um, in any given year is somewhere between like seven and nine million dollars. Okay, it's typically towards the lower end of that. But if you consider three wins, uh, seven million dollars, that's twenty one million dollars. So. His compensation will be right in line, or even maybe a bit of a uh, uh, a better deal for the Mets if he is able to repeat a phenomenal season. But even if he's a a two win closer or something like that, uh, and, and and you know throws a lot of innings, I still think that it could be a good deal, a solid deal. But the Mets made this deal to continue to be in a win now mode. You don't pay up for a closer if you're not planning on spending in other areas to compete. So they've spent this money and they're going to be on to the next thing, which I would think is not only shoring up the, uh, the, the rotation, because they've got to figure out what they're doing with DeGrom. And I know that we want to talk about that um, because now Bassett has opted out as well. But um, what they are going to do with the middle of their lineup it was clear that, you know, the stringing five or six hits together during the regular season, you know, it can be done. And the Mets really made it an art last year. That doesn't necessarily work when you're facing some of the best pitchers in in baseball. And so I think that there needs to be a, a, a concerted effort to get more pop in the lineup, somebody that can really change the – the game with one swing of a bat, because it's not just that we saw Philly do it this year. It's that we saw uh, Atlanta do it last year. And um, if you watched the world series in 2019, uh, what was the big, um, what were the big hits? It was like Soto's home run, Howie Kendrick's home run, uh, Anthony Rendon's home run. Those are the big hits that you think about. And those are the ones that end up winning rings. So if the Mets are going to make it a point to go deep 
in October, and that's what Steve has said that he wants. This is the the beginning of that three to five year window that he talked about, right? Sure. Um, they need to spend to get a big bat in the middle of the lineup, somebody that can complement Pete. Oh, absolutely, and I think the you know the the number one guy on anyone's list is Aaron Judge, but um, you have to think at least from a realistic perspective, that's probably, uh, you know, a bridge too far for the Mets. I think they've already said that, you know, you can't really take what anybody says publicly with more than a grain of salt right now. But, um, you know, I I don't foresee the Mets making a strong push. Of course they should, you know, he might, he's going to be looking at a, you know, a seven, eight year, 300 and well plus million dollar deal. But, you know, for a player like that, um, he's well worth it. I did like how uh, the buzz that Trey Turner has been getting, and I know that he's not an Aaron Judge type guy, but since 2019, top two players in Major League Baseball in F War are Aaron Judge and Trey Turner. And now Trey Turner's, you know, the five tool player. He's got that pop that you're looking for, but he can do everything else too. Um, yes. He's not Aaron Judge, and I think I know what you're saying when you need pop in the lineup, consistent pop in the lineup, because, you know, a three-run homer can be the difference between a wild-card series loss and a trip to the NLCS. You know what I mean? Like, um, anything like this can happen. But you can always – you can look, you know, up and down the lists in certain, you know, aspects – you know, I think the Mets have been lacking offensively in the catcher position. They could look at a guy like Wilson Contreras if the money's right. Um, you know, pitching wise, I know we were talking about hitting, but they got a lot of holes to fill there. And you got to think, yes, you got to be wary of the uh, the qualifying offer. And you know, Carlos Rodon and 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 uh, Contreras and Turner, who we just talked about. But you know, the Mets have so many different directions they can go, but they're their end game or their goal is is very clear. Fill out the rotation, fill out the bullpen, add some pop to the lineup, and keep whatever you had going, you know, moving right along. Because there's a nice foundation here. And, um, you know, it's still so early to know how things develop on the, the open market, how things develop on the, you know, <laughs> the the phone call or text message or email market as far as trade and stuff like that. Mm. I think there's going to be a lot cooking over the next few weeks. And, you know, we can peg, you know, Jacob DeGrom, say where he's going to go or Brandon Nimmo, say where he's going to go or Chris Bassett, whatever you, however you want to put it. But, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of layers that are going to be peeled away and, I'm, I'm with you. The Mets have a, 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 a plan in place. You know, they pretty much have to, but um, there's going to be so many different pots on so many different, um, you know, stovetops that it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be wild. But it's yeah. like Jake, like Jake, how Jake kind of falls into place. That's like almost a domino for the rest of the Mets, right? It definitely is as far as the rotation goes, right? Like if if you're not going to be able to keep DeGrom, if DeGrom goes to Texas or St. Louis or somewhere else, right? The the effect is that you have to replace that second ace at the top of the rotation. And whether that's Verlander or 
it is um, Rodon or um, even this guy Senga, who might be, you know, maybe he's a number three. Uh, that'll be crucial. And, and there'll also be availability on the trade market. You know, maybe a guy like Zach Gallen is available. Um, oh. You speak the language there, the Yeah. Oh, I've been going at that for years. Right. And and so there are going to be guys that are available, and we might not see it telegraphed. We haven't necessarily seen every move that the Mets are going to be made uh, leaked and and telegraphed like it has been under previous regimes. So it might just end up being a surprise, but the good news is that this market is pretty uh, to take one of Billy's terms robust. And um, I think there are a lot of ways for the Mets to improve. And I would love to have judge. Obviously I think judge brings a ton of star power. The fact that he has made himself like a, a, a superb center fielder, it's fantastic, but I think that the Mets could also get better. Uh, and, and this is not a consolation prize by any means, but like if you sign Trey Turner, or you sign Carlos Correa, that gives you more pop in the lineup. And those guys are phenomenal in the field. You put them at at second, and then move to move McNeil, shift Marte over, uh, and, and then you know you could get a defensive center fielder for cheap at the deadline. I think that's a really good lineup as well. But the point is that they need one more hitter. It was painful to watch the Mets just kind of like scuffle through the last six to eight weeks of the season. And then obviously it ends in that disappointment, but just not getting the big hit. And it it just never came. So where where do you look? Do you look at like a Jose Abreu to try and fill out the DH spot? I mean, Vogelback's back and he's back real cheap. And if he can, you know, find if they can find the right matchups for him and he could still be that productive part-time player, that's great. But you need more, right? Yeah, you definitely do. But that's why I'm saying that you would want it in in the form of an everyday player, I think, more than just like a, a DH type. Uh, a Like if you think about Trey Turner, uh, the number of positions that he's played, uh, he even played center field, I think, for the Nats at times when they needed it. So yeah. This is a guy that you can plug and play anywhere. He averages something like 25 home runs over a full season played. Uh, oh, he, he's know, a 100 run, 100 RBI yeah, caliber his player. speed is unbelievable. Uh, it's just game-changing speed. He's so smooth. All of his actions are beautiful. They'll probably age well. Uh, so for me, I would love to have him. I, I think yeah. that he's a great player. Um, I'm with you 100%. So if the Mets can do that or if they, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of Correa. I think uh, he should be probably better than he is. Uh, But even he, I think, would would be great in the lineup. And that would be fun, like having a a Puerto Rican middle infield. (laughs) It would be awesome. I mean, you can move um, newly minted silver slugger, like you said, uh, Jeff McNeil around. I, the more, and and again, we already said it previously, how it's it's very tough to take anything you hear these days about you know where players might go or where there's interest, you know the whole Degrom thing, you know, I think you need deep pocketed places for Degrom's value to be boosted, and I think Texas is a perfect place for that. And I wouldn't be shocked if he has genuine interest to move down there, but 
Um, you know, after the last deal that he signed, he's looking to milk all he can out of this deal. And I think he circles back to the Mets and they just, you know, blow anyone else's offer out of the water and keep him here through his career. But, you know, moving on from from DeGrom, you know, if you have a a Turner in the mix, if you have a, a – I like Correa. I think Correa would fit so well in this lineup where he's not – no one's looking at him to be the guy. Of course, he's going to be a highly paid free agent acquisition, and he will have you know pressure and expectations. But when you have a roster with Lindor and Pete Alonso and and, and whoever else this this team adds, you know, it's pretty much just like at least to me, it's not okay. You know how Lindor kind of was deer in the headlights that first season yeah, because he was like that, you know, he was here, here, this is your superstar and this is the rest of your team. Well, now you've got, you know, budding and developing superstars. I think Alonzo's taking that, you know, cross that, that threshold. I think McNeil is, you know, even if he's not the power threat, um, he is of, of, of that ilk, <laughs> I guess you could say, you know, adding a guy like Correa or Turner, is just going to, you know, keep that beat moving. They're just going to, if they're, you know, in a perfect world, just a seamless transition and, and everyone keeps it moving forward. And that's yeah, how well, I see those types yeah. of additions. I, I, I agree with you in theory, but like I watched <laughs> a lot of Correa this year, you know, being that he was here in Minnesota and, and I think he was kind of like being counted upon to be the guy. And I'm not sure that he really rose to that, level um now, don't you think that he would kind of fall under that radar if he were on a Mets roster surrounded by other star level guys I'm not sure that he like anywhere that he goes that he wouldn't be uh like a, a target a, a big name and um yeah I, I because the money is going to be there the name his involvement with the Astros yeah, but, but look at Springer like Springer went to Toronto and he, you know, he's produced. He's also had some injury issues, but you know, it, it's almost like Houston, the Houston thing almost melted away. Once he got to Toronto, you don't think that happens if he finds success, wherever it is, whether it's in New York, whether wherever he goes. Yeah, you know, no, and I'm not saying that people didn't, I'm not saying that people didn't like him here. I'm just saying that I don't think that he could be in a situation where he's like incognito. I, I think yeah. that, Anywhere that Carlos Correa plays the rest of his career, he will be one of the faces of the franchise. I, I'm not sure if that um, – I'm not sure how he handled that level of pressure this year. Uh, and you I, have to think that New York is going to be like that pressure times a million. It would be. It would be, of course. And, and you know, you, when you play in this division also – you have to travel to some places where you're going to play in front of some really rowdy fans and, oh, gonna hear and yeah. not to mention like very demanding home fans. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. I don't know. I mean, you can't go wrong by adding a super talented player like Carlos Correa, but I, I would say that the, the gap in my preference between him and Trey Turner is significant. Oh, I'm I would with also you. throw uh, Bogarts into that mix. I, I'm not sure uh, 
like, you know, because we also don't know, do these guys, it's a loaded shortstop class, right? There's four of them. Yeah. Do they want to play shortstop? Because a lot of guys want to play shortstop. They don't want to move off that spot. And so they won't go places where they're not going to be penciled in. And we already have a shortstop. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then you also have to look at the, you know, and this is with an eye towards Alvarez, it's an eye towards Mauricio, it's an eye towards Beatty. You know, these guys are all pretty much bubbled up to this level now. You kind of have to take that into account when, okay, well, if Correa does want to play third base, well, what are we looking at as far as Beatty? What are we looking at? I mean, obviously, if you have the ability to add a player of that caliber, whether it's Correa, whether it's someone else willing to play third by a trade, whatever, you know, you look, say, well, Beatty could be a good player one day, but this is a win-now ball club. So, you, you know, you kind of weigh that option. But, you know, look at the winter that Mauricio's had. Do you think that he fits somewhere? And, uh, so many layers and so many decisions this, this front office has to make this winter. It's crazy. Uh, I think Mauricio would be a really nice trade chip. Stop. Stop that right now. <laughs> I, I just <laughs> – No, he's, he's going to be – I think he's going to be good, but I, I, I'm, I'm – I'm getting to the point that, yeah, uh, unless the Mets are willing to move him around defensively and see if he sticks, at this point, his value is just, you know, Fangraphs has him like 32 on their top one, whatever it is. It's not 100. It's like 100 and change. But um, Yeah, but even with a guy like Beatty or Vientos or, you know, any of these guys, I, I – Maybe not Alvarez, but even him, I would throw into this group that they're all movable to get the pieces to win now. This yeah. team, the way that it's built, they are they have enough key pieces that are on the wrong side of 30 that you have to be focused on the here and now. And that's why I was so disappointed with the, the trade deadline, too. It's not like so many great players got moved, but I don't think that the Mets were – aggressive enough at, at the deadline to get the pieces that they needed to to make a strong enough push but yeah, you know, and also who knows right like they could have done more aggressive things and and it doesn't matter because <laughs> none of it makes sense uh i finally went back and looked at the standings today and seeing you know the 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 Braves and the Mets tied at 101 and, and 61. It's just, ah, it, you know, it, it's, it's almost human nature to look back and say, Oh, what about this? And no, oh, what about that one? And no, oh, what about this series? But boy, I mean, that's, I guess the, the gift and the curse of 162 that you can nitpick one by one, but it's also a, you know, it, it's a, it's a full painting at the end of the thing. It's a, you know, it, it's, yeah, I and, think you know. I think you know what I'm getting at. It's just, no, of course, and it would have been so frustrating even if we had, you know, held off Atlanta and won the division. It would have been nice to say, "Oh, we won the division," but it also would have been extremely frustrating to lose to them instead of the uh, to lose to Philadelphia instead of losing to San Diego. Also, yeah. So, um, arguably, maybe have even felt worse. So, who's to say? But. Um, yeah, we're just saying that's what we're here for. We're just <laughs> there. There are things that the Mets can certainly do to get better, and I'm uh, I'm excited about the number of options that they have. Who, who can um 
who is in a situation kind of like Bassett, would you say, this year? Like, obviously the Bassett trade came out of nowhere, but you can see that the Mets were kind of like targeting guys that had great peripherals and um, just hadn't necessarily exploded onto the scene yet. Team, They, they were coming from teams that – aren't necessarily willing to pay them longer term. Who would you say is in a situation like that contract wise and team wise? Yeah, it's tough to say. I mean, you can look at those. And I know he got bombed in the series against the Yankees, but um, and I, I, I wouldn't necessarily peg him as a guy for the Mets, but I think that Aaron Savale going to a different organization, going to somewhere that could just put a different set of eyes on his stuff, which he has good stuff, but it just looks like maybe he's stalled out a bit in Cleveland. I think that he's a a potential candidate to be moved and see gains somewhere. As far as the Mets, um, you know, Merrill Kelly always, I know you brought up um, Zach Allen before, Merrill, Merrill Kelly really flies under the radar in Arizona, as, as many people do. Um, I think that's a guy who could, you know, and, and look, you know, you could pretty much look at, um, at Bassett and be like, well, you know, this was a top 10 ERA guy for three years. Nobody really knew who he was. And Merrill Kelly's pretty much the same type thing when he's on. He's, you know, terrific. Um, yeah. You put him in a in a a mid rotation spot, and you know he could be a very very uh, 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 just a, a really productive you know key cog piece. I know that <laughs> I think who who was it? Heyman was talking about uh, Pablo Lopez possibly being uh, on the trade block, which that's enticing. Yeah, I think that they tried to move him at the deadline too. Um, I'm I'm interested to see it teams are willing to pay more. I imagine that that's, that would, I think be probably more of a backup option. Um, after we see how, uh, free agency goes. Absolutely. I'm curious to see how Martin Perez shakes out. I know everyone's kind of expecting him to go back to Texas. He was comfortable there. Um, he was just on a one year deal, I think out of, uh, out of Boston, but yeah, I think um, it was approved. it. Yep. Yeah. And and really had a very very nice season. I think that's a perfect you know three four complement to you have to think Cookie's going to be in the mix. But how do you feel about fourteen million fourteen million for Cookie? He was a little inconsistent. What do you do? You, do you, are you down with that fourteen million? Uh, I think he ate a lot of good innings for the Mets. He didn't necessarily uh, show up against the best teams that the Mets played, but I thought that he was a valuable contributor again, like $14 million. Like it sounds like a bigger number than it is for an open market. Um, And, and just to be able to know that you have one guy like kind of in place, I I thought the value was fine. Yeah. No. And I think he could be a solid provider, a solid contributor. You just kind of have to, um, bear with it when he doesn't have it. And, 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 you know, I think that's the same could be said for anybody, but yeah, I think in, in the time that he's been in Queens, you know, Carrasco's had trouble finding that rhythm. Once he finds it, he's fine, but sometimes he gets a little out of whack as we all do. <laughs> um, like how about a guy like Marco Gonzalez coming out of Seattle who 
has been a solid, solid piece in the back end of the rotation. You know, as a number five guy, as opposed to, let's say, a Peterson or or Lucchese or, or even just to, you know, spark that internal competition. I'm, I'm okay with taking a flyer on a back of the rotation guy who's been okay in, in recent years. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and the other thing is that I, I trust Jeremy Hefner. I, I think that there's a reason why the Mets have invested in Hef also. So um, giving him pieces to play with, I think is, is a good call. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, it's going to be a, um, it's going to be an exciting winter, and I think the Mets just picked up a, a former Reds, former driveline guy as an assistant pitching director. I That's wish right. I could remember his name. Yeah, uh, which, uh, you know, there's I, – I see it as a good thing to get more people that are interested in looking at more data points yeah. and um, possibly using that information to – uh, geared towards player development. I, I think that is this next wave of, uh, you know, the quote unquote analytics is figuring out the best way to apply it to player development. And that's happening everywhere. And the Mets um, get smarter when they do stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, you know, I like, I like Cole Irvin. And you know, the Oakland likes to trade their guys when there's any sort of value to him, him and, uh, James Caprellian, who was a former Yankees draft pick, I want to say. Um, yeah, two very nice arms. You package Sean Murphy in with one of those guys, and you're knocking out a couple of stones in uh, in one throw. Getting Sean Murphy would be fantastic. Oh, yeah. I have friends in Boston who are just salivating over bringing him in. Um, the Mets haven't had a, a donk like that at catcher since Anthony Record. <laughs> uh, you know, to, to put up with that can, it, it's um, – it's an impressive feat. Wrecker, wrecker, that that thing was a dump truck. <laughs> Still is, I'm sure, but you know, we don't get we don't get to look at it. Yeah. Ah, good times. Nice to have you back, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. And and they're gonna give us plenty of news here. Uh uh, we'll figure out what's going on with the outfield, figure out if Conforto will be back. Uh, <laughs> what they do with the prospects. Uh, there's like so many things up in the air for this team right now. And, uh, you know, 101 wins, but uh, not achieving the ultimate goal, even though the regular season was so fun. I, I like that there is that fire. And I hope that Cohen is, is driving the front office to make these um, – more aggressive moves and put them in a position that they could be the last team standing this year. Yeah. I think that's, you know, that's the ultimate goal. That's what everyone's wants right now. That's what everyone was so let down about after, you know, fizzing out in the wild card series, you know, this team, this franchise, this organization, this fan base, everybody, they're, they're ready for that next step. And, you know, maybe it'll be a couple of next steps. Maybe, you know, maybe you have to work towards an NLCS. And then maybe you have to work even harder towards a World Series in another season. But, you know, as long as you're seeing incremental progress, I'm okay with that. How the rest of the fan base is, uh, you know, adjusts to uh, to, to patience will uh, yet to be determined. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to say one more thing. So, uh, with – the the Astros, I, I just I couldn't believe that they didn't um, extend 
James Click for longer than a year. And I, I've met James Click a couple of times. He's a very smart guy, very nice guy. Um, but to me, that clearly seems to indicate that Stearns will go there. Um, so Milwaukee might be a good trade partner also. They've got those two studs at the top of their rotation in Burns and Woodruff. And both of those guys are like uh, a year plus away from free agency. And who's to say that they'll re-sign there? They're both younger than 30 right now. Yeah. Um, those would be great gets also. Because um, I imagine that they're doing a little bit of a rebuild, at least a soft rebuild here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can't, you know, Willie Adonis and Kristen Yellick aren't going to carry um, – carry into the postseason, or at least mm-hmm. you know, not expectedly. I think that they are solid pieces, but um but yeah, you have a, a Corbin Burns who's a you know perennial Cy Young candidate. Brandon Woodruff who is just a quintessential number two. That's a, um oh yeah. You know, I think Milwaukee can go either way there. I think that they can sell and sell high or they can stick with them and 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 add to it because there there's some um <laughs> man you have to wonder if Keston Hira turned out to be what everyone hoped he could be what yeah. I still think he could be but um how that changes that franchise and he's like not I don't want to say he's an insignificant piece but if he takes <laughs> off it's almost like the future set into place for that franchise yeah I think yeah. so good stuff um I think we're we're all wrapped up, right? We're back mm-hmm. next week. Yeah. All right. I think you guys know all the sign off. It's let's fucking go Mets. Um, let's hope hope we got some more uh, some more news cooking over the week. And uh, until then, Taryn, I think that's all we got, man. Yeah. All right. All right, guys. We will see you next time. Again, be sure to check out War on the Diamond. That's streaming everywhere on Tuesday the 15th, which also happens to be my eldest's 18th birthday, which blows my mind. Happy birthday, dear. I love you so much, more than anything in the world. And, um, yeah, uh, maybe we will reach out with some free streaming gift gift certificates for the – War on the Diamond. I believe that Amazon is their spot. So maybe we'll have to throw some of those out there. But we will uh, we'll take care of that on Tuesday. This will be out uh, Monday. And we'll see you guys next time. Peace.